Welcome to the 13th episode of It Wasn't Me, a true crime podcast where we talk about murders and intrigue us. I'm Mercedes. And I am Cindy. In this week's episode, we not only reveal the details surrounding the death of Duran St. Louis Bailey, but also the question of not one, but two severed penises. Thank you for listening to last week's episode where we examined the death of Joseph Andriano by his murderous wife, Wendy. Our podcast is not recommended for children. Fair warning. This can be extremely horrifying and graphic, and we will use offensive language. So if you have kids, put them away for a while and join us for a murder. Be forewarned, we are passionate and always have been about true crime. Sometimes we're going to make jokes and we're going to laugh during our podcast. For more information and links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, please visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform, and please give us a five-star rating. While you're there, leave us a comment telling us which murder intrigues you. And if you like our show, please consider supporting us through patreon.com forward slash itwasn'tmepod. We appreciate our Patreon supporters more than we can express with words. Thank you so very much. Hey, Cindy, how's it going? It's going really well. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks. Awesome. Did you have a good week? I did. Yeah? Yep. Hey, I'm excited to be back. I hear you've got some good things going on our website. Yes, yes. Um, we actually started a blog. Okay. And it's up there, yes. ready to go. And you ready to hear our deepest, darkest secrets? Yeah. Well, <laughs> at least yeah. what's going on a little bit. And it, you know, this is also a place for us to talk about things that we don't discuss on our podcast. Or if you have questions or insights, you know, we can add to that there. So I'm excited about it. Yes. Stay yeah. tuned because you get to see pictures of my new nose. Yeah. And check out the website, right? It wasn't me. TrueCrime.com. Thank you. Thank you. So anyway, Cindy, today or this week, we're going back to Vegas. We were there a few episodes ago with um, a bloody box of bones when um, our guy had kidnapped the eight-year-old. Yes. Um, Now, you know, I don't like doing other podcasts. I've said this before that, that other people have done. So I just type in random keywords. And my random keyword search this week was, it wasn't me. And I got it. Yeah. And I got a doozy of a bite. So I am super excited to tell you about this murder. Please do. I'm ready. This story begins on a hot Vegas night in July, on July 8th, 2001, when one Richard Schott, an entrepreneur of the homeless variety, was dumpster diving. So he was looking for aluminum cans. And actually, he was at, uh, he was behind the Nevada State Bank, and he moved some trash around. There's a cardboard box. He moved the box, and lo and behold, he finds a gruesome discovery. Uh-oh. He finds a mutilated, tortured body of a dead man. Awesome. All right? He was totally shocked about what he saw, by what he saw, and he described the scene as horrific. In newspaper accounts, he said that he noticed that the dead man's pants were pulled down to his ankles. And the guy's groin area was covered in white plastic sheeting. He also noticed this guy had a cracked skull. Jeez, he was very observant. Yeah. Uh, His blood-caked eyes were swollen shut. The dude was missing six teeth, and they were scattered about um, on the ground. So this is what this homeless person reported. This is what what the articles that I read reported that shot saw. Okay. All All right. He also noticed that the guy was stabbed multiple times. Blood was everywhere. It was a bloody scene. I imagine so. But most horrific of all was that he noticed that the man didn't have a penis and he saw it that someone had just like flung it off to the side. Oh. And um, it was a few feet away from the dead man's body. Oh, that's tragic. Yeah. Well, Richard um, shot. I wonder if his name was Dig for short. <laughs> <laughs> Dig shot. <laughs> oh my gosh anyway anyway somehow he got a hold of the las vegas metro police who arrived shortly after the discovery of the body they secured the crime scene with the obligatory yellow tape 
they quickly established the perimeter of the massacre and of course it attracted you know onlookers the macabre the nosy Mm -hmm. here yeah there they were (laughs) so there was a small crowd surrounding the the outer perimeter of the yellow tape now the dead man had no id so at first they didn't know who this guy was but the police started asking around and people were like yeah i think that's saint louis so they decided this homeless guy must go by the name St. Louis on the streets. Okay. How did they determine he was homeless? Just because the homeless people said he, they were homeless? Yeah, I think um, word on the street said that this, you know, we don't know this guy's name, but he goes by St. Louis and he's newly homeless. Like he was not homeless for long. Okay. Now, back at the scene, there was this one officer that was approached by a woman named Diane Parker and she was a resident of an apartment complex that was very close to the bank, like it was next door. She came up, she's like, what is going on here? And she told the cop that a week ago she had been raped and she was wondering if the dead guy was the man who had raped her. The officer... Well, the officer know that? Well, she was just wondering who it was. Okay. And I don't know, she did tell the officer that she had been raped a week before. She was wondering if it was the homeless guy that had raped her. All okay. I know is that the officer took her name and contact information and he also took the names and contact information of the other onlookers and then he passed it on to the investigators okay the homicide detectives thosin and detective la rochelle who finally got to the scene about 1 a.m they're probably pretty busy in in vegas, vegas i would say yes i have this whole csi las vegas oh, scene set up in my head listen right yeah this is Sorry. no gil grissom here okay <laughs> i'm gonna tell you that right now Where's Catherine? um <clears throat> The detectives stayed at the crime scene for about five hours, collecting and gathering evidence, and then they went back to their headquarters. Later on, and I'm not sure, I'm not clear like how many days or hours it took, but they finally identified St. Louis as Duran Bailey. He was a 44-year-old homeless man from St. Louis, Missouri. They noticed that his pants had been pulled down by his killer or killers. All right. His groin had been wrapped in clear plastic sheeting. Just the groin area. Just the groin area. I'm trying to picture that in my mind. Like, uh, yeah. I picture like a shower curtain wrapped around it. Yeah, or like wrapped around as like waist. Like the plastic sheeting you put on the ground while you're painting, or uh, right, yeah, yeah, something like that. They also found a wad of freshly chewed gum right by the body. Several cigarette butts right by the body. Yes, freshly chewed gum. Hello, DNA. Yeah. Right. They found at least one set of distinct bloody footprints that led away from the dumpster towards the parking lot, but there were other footprints in blood there. They just had one distinct set. Okay, understood. There were fresh tire tracks on a parking divider that led out of the bank parking lot, and they could tell that it was fresh, and I don't, you know, I guess it's just not faded. Okay. They also had access to the police, um, I'm sorry, to the video footage from the bank's ATM. Oh, you know, that's some quality... Exactly, video and in right 2001, there. you know, it was... I mean, you it can't was, get quality video today. Right, right. Alone. But at least it's something, right? right. You, can, you can at least identify male, female, black, white, Hispanic, whatever. Maybe, I mean, you can, Maybe. you can see my house from outer space from the satellite, but, you know... Yeah, true that, true <laughs> that, yeah. Um, they also had access to dozens of witnesses who lived in the apartment. There were two apartment complexes right next to the bank. Okay. So they had all those wi- potential witnesses. After the Emmys, the the Emmy uh, after the autopsy, there were some there. The Emmy had some findings. Okay. Uh, yes, we know that there was blunt force trauma to Bailey's head and to his body. Mm-hmm. He had multiple stab wounds. Right. He had post mortem amputation of the penis, so his dick was cut off after he was dead. Mm-hmm. Um, his carotid ar- artery had been slashed and yeah. um, pucker up, girls, but. His, um, he was stabbed in his anus and slashed. Yes, they like found. His asshole. Yes, he was pretty much raped with a knife <gasps> with a blade up. Holy shit. Yeah. I just puckered up. Yeah. <laughs> I know, me too. <laughs> I know, Holy me too. Right? Now, they did also. Was he alive when that happened? You know, I don't know. I don't know if he was or not. It, it may have been. Okay, now later on, are we going to find out if he's the rapist or not? We're gonna, huh? 
Was he the guy who raped the girl? Okay, well, I can't tell you that story yet. Why I sound really country all of a sudden. Okay, so um, more evidence that uh, when they did swabs on his penis and anus, they did find semen that was not his. And also in his anus or on it, like they jacked off and like. Well, they used a swab, so I'm not sure. Okay. Okay, I'm not sure how that was. I. They didn't give that kind I mean, like, of detail in the article. Was he raped? Was he, he I would say that yes. I did read a couple of articles where it said that he was, and we're going to get I into mean, that later. It was the, kind of like. After the razor <clears throat> raping. But, like, was he, you know, okay. before? Okay. So I'm going to say yes. But I'm going to say um, I haven't found, like, solid evidence of that. Okay. Okay. Just based on, you know, things that I found in articles, like a few different articles said that he was raped, but nothing definitive. We're going to talk about it later. Okay. Another thing was that the medical examiner did not really establish a time of death. And this is going to be important later. Is this because of the heat? I mean, it's July. There are a couple of different reasons. He kind of gave it time, but then the police said, oh, no, that can't possibly be right. So, so we'll get to that. Okay. All right. So now the next day, after they found the body, the two detectives, Thosin and La Rochelle, interviewed the bank employees at the, um, and they said that St. Louis was probably a customer there. He had been, um, his description matched that of a bank customer, but the security guard was like, yeah. I mean, my description meets lots of customers at lots of banks, I'm sure. Right. I mean, besides you brown hair, blue eyes, and noseless, but you get what I'm saying. Right. Well, there aren't <laughs> many people that walk around with gauze on their face, right? Okay. Um, the security guard also said that, you know, this wasn't a place where homeless people hung out. It was not. It was not. Okay. Um, Thosin and La Rochelle also went and interviewed Diane Parker. Remember, she's the lady that claimed that she was raped a week ago. And did, I'm sorry, did she or did she not go to the police prior to the She did scene? call, she, she called the police a week, the, when, she when it happened, raped. yes. Okay. Did they make a report? Yes. Okay. Did they? Okay. We're going to get to that. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Please continue. Please let me. <laughs> okay. All right. Anyway, she told the cops that she'd been raped on July 1st by a black guy that she knew as St. Louis, who was also called Duran. Um, now, they noted in their report. That was in her original report? Yes. Okay. She, uh, the cops noted in their report that her body and face were bruised, but it does not reflect that they asked her for details about the assault that she said she'd suffered. Now, this, no, this is the detectives are asking this. So they're taking note of it. Okay. Uh, okay she okay. did notify the police beforehand. Now, I don't know if there was ever a rape kit or anything like that done on her. Okay. Um, now, she said they, they off, as they were walking out the door, they're like, oh, by the way, can we look at the bottom of your shoes? They're thinking, oh, well, let's check the bottom of her shoes for you know, blood. Just in case she chopped off his pants. Right. Because she's saying that this guy, Durant St. Louis, raped her. Right. Or... Allegedly. Now, it's not clear when they identified Bailey as the murdered guy. Okay. They didn't know if it was St. Louis or not. But they never really considered the possibility that he was the rapist of Diane Parker. Even though she gave them. Right. Even though she, um, Thosin obtained the report of her assault on July 17th. But they did not bother to follow up with her. Yeah, of course they So didn't. there was a police report um, when the rape happened. She even talked about being raped a week later when they found this dead body. But the police never followed up with her on that. Aside from the initial interview. That's a shame. Now, according to a March 2015 article by Jordan Smith, um, the article is published in The Intercept, which is an online magazine. Those in La Rochelle really did not do much to solve Bailey's murder. You know, he's just he's just a old homeless guy. Who cares? She pointed out the evidence that they did not gather. OK, OK. First, they did not pull the ATM camera footage. That's stupid. They never pulled that footage. I mean, it might not have been great footage, but like you said, it's right. Something. It, it could it could even establish time of death, whatever. They didn't pull yeah. that. They did not canvas. Time, yeah. Time stamps. Yeah. They didn't establish or I'm sorry, they didn't canvas a neighborhood or apartment complex 
near the crime scene. So they had all these potential witnesses and they didn't interview any of them. They didn't contact any of St. Louis's known associates. So they didn't go to any of his buddies, you know, and say like, you know, where was right? Does this person look familiar? Right. Okay. They didn't try to retrace his steps to see if, you know, somebody had a beef with him and wanted to kill him. And they did not follow up with the onlooker contact information besides with Diane Parker. So, what kind of cops are these? Yeah. Well, they were busy. They were busy. He's just a stupid homeless guy, right? Nobody's going to give a shit about him. Not true. So basically, they claim that for 11 days they had nothing to go on, but they didn't pull any of this evidence or try to do any kind of investigation this way. Were they? Did they also have other investigations? I mean, I don't know yes, how... Yes, they did. They did have other... So they have other... Yes. They're not solely... Right. This is not their only case. I mean, this okay. is low, low case on the totem pole, I would imagine. Okay. All right. So for 11 days, they're saying... They're claiming, oh, we had nothing to go on. However, they get a tip on the 11th day. They get a phone call from Laura Johnson, who is a juvenile probation officer from PSHA. I think I'm saying that right. Uh, I don't know. PSHA or POCH. I like POCHA better. It sounds nice. Yes, it does. Um, And this is a city that's about three hours northeast of Vegas. And Johnson, Johnson, (laughs) she she calls and she asks the police if by chance has anyone reported a missing penis? I'm sorry, what? Yeah, she calls the police and, and she's three hours away in Pioche. And she calls the Las Vegas police and says, excuse me, has anyone reported a missing penis? Uh, now, of course, this is going to wake up some powers to be or whoever. Um, and she had she, a detached penis. Right. Is it a missing one? A missing, has, there, has anyone called and said? Uh, hello, I'm missing my penis. Yes. All right. Hmm. She reports that one of her friends named Dixie Teakin, who was a teacher friend of hers, had spoken with one of her former students. So Dixie had a former student named Kirsten Blaze Lobato, who she kept in touch with. Kirsten um, claimed to have cut off a man's penis in Vegas when he tried to rape her. Uh-oh. Right? The severed penis report aroused Thosin and the uh. show. And they wasted no time in driving the three hours to interview Johnson, Dixie Teakin, as well as the then 18-year-old Kirsten Blaze Lobato. Within three hours of getting there, they had interrogated and subsequently arrested this 18-year-old girl for the murder and mutilation of Duran St. Louis Bailey. Now, Kirsten Blaze Lobato, she went by Blaze, had a pretty rough childhood. By the time she was 17, she had been raped and assaulted by three different people. Shut up. Um, when she was five, she was sexually, sexually molested for over a year by her mom's living boyfriend. And he doesn't need a penis. No, he doesn't. He does not need a penis. No. He's not responsible enough to have one. Yeah, and I don't know really what happened to him. I know that there was a custody issue and the, and the child was taken away from her mother and given to the father. The father was married and they ended up moving um, away to a place called Panica or Panaka. I don't know how to say it. Panica. Okay. She was assaulted two more times. First at 13 by a f- former boyfriend and then at 17 by one of her friend's father's. Jesus freaking Christ. Right. The first two cases were reported to police, but according to her family, neither the rape, neither one of the rapists was punished. Did they get her therapy? No. Oh. They gave her meth. No, I don't know if they gave her meth, but she but she, she began resorted Yes. To okay. But I'm jumping ahead here. Okay. Now, her stepmother really loved her. She, you know, she really did love her. Uh, and when she was interviewed, she said that when Blaze was 10, the family moved to moved from Las Vegas to Panica, which is a small desert Mormon town, like in the mountainous regions, right by the, the Utah border. The community was very welcoming to the family and Blaze uh, was very friendly. She made friends with, you know, really good kids from good families. Now, she said that one of the sons of these families ended up raping her when she was 13 and this led to her, sh- yeah, yeah. This led her to become quite rebellious. She started hanging out with the wrong, wrong crowds. She was became promiscuous. 
she... Well, after you've been sexually abused... Yeah, that's I mean, one of the signs. That's number two right there, right? Yep. And, no, yes, yes, this is number two. Geez. And the first time was when she was five. This poor girl. When she went wild and started hanging out, sleeping with people, she became the target of bullying and, of course, gossip. And according to her stepmother, this is around the time when she first started using meth. The stepmother admitted that she and um, her husband, Blaze's dad, also were meth users, but only when their life became difficult. Doesn't your life become difficult once you start using meth? I mean, I think so. I'm not a meth head, but just based on observation of those around me that I know, not even that I know, but that I see. Lobato was a bright student. She loved poetry. She was good in school, especially with English. Um, And she, you know, had that teacher friend. She wrote a lot of poetry, like I said, and she had something published in some journal for young writers. But she was depressed and she eventually left high school, the regular high school, for an alternative school. She graduated a year early. She graduated in 2000 instead of 2001. (laughs) And then in early 2000, she packed her car up looking to make make a life for herself and headed for Vegas. Mm, That's probably not. Let's go to Vegas, baby. Right? No. But she's young and likes to party, right? Now, by the middle of May 2001, at the age of 18, she was a full-blown meth head. Uh, She's basically homeless in Vegas. She was um, sleeping her way from party to party, crashing couch surfing where she could. So sad. Tragic. Now, in May of 2001, while she was in the middle of a three-day meth binge, she hadn't slept for three days. Um, in the early mornings, just before Memorial Day, nobody really knows the exact date, but most think it was around May 23rd. She pulled up to a budget suites motel in a sketchy part of Vegas. Uh, it's a place where she'd been staying with some folks who were living there. And as she was making her way from her car to the suite, she was suddenly jumped from behind and she later describes it as bum rushed. Now, I just need to stop because I read in another article that she was leaving a strip club. So I'm not 100% certain on the, on which one it really was. Okay. If it was in the budget suites hotel or if the strip club was right next to it, that was not clear to me. Possible. But whatever the case is, is, is it, she said that a, a large, very large black man who smelled like alcohol and dirty diapers pushed her down on her back, pulled her up her miniskirt and pushed aside her panties and tried to rape her. Right. She struggled and she was crying, please, please stop, don't. And um, she said that the man slapped her and told her to shut up, bitch. She. Who you calling a bitch? Yeah. So he's got his weight on her and he's trying to rape her. And she manages to reach in her back pocket where she kept a small butterfly knife that her dad had given her for her safety. And she flipped it open. She grabbed for the guy's groin and she slashed. He backed he jumped off oh, off of her quite quickly and she freed herself and ran to her car. When she looked back, she claimed that she could see him on the ground. He was alive and well, but he was crying. He was hurt. He had his penis slashed. Good for him. Right? All right. So he she does, He doesn't deserve a penis either. No, he doesn't. And she jumped in her car and sped off and as she drove, she was taking off her bloody clothes and she was throwing them out the window. She says she possibly threw away the knife, but she's not sure. So she's not sure what she did with the knife. She doesn't really remember. You know, don't forget that she had been up for three days. She's a meth head. That's probably kind of all yeah. blurred. And, and she's probably jonesing for a hit. You know, she's freaked out. She doesn't go to the police. She might be in shock, too. Yeah, she, I'm sure she is. And I think she was in shock for weeks later, as I'm going to explain in a minute. But she didn't go to the police. Instead, she drove to um, the, uh, the home of her ex-boyfriend. He wasn't there. So she leaves her car, a 1984 Pontiac Fiero. My mom used to have a Fiero. Wow. And she leaves the car there. And she leaves a note saying, I can't remember exactly what the note said, but she she leaves a note. And she goes to a church that's nearby, uses her phone, and calls the people that she's been partying with at the hotel. They come get her. Okay. I'm not sure why she leaves her car. It never really says why she left her car like maybe she's just too shaky to drive or she's afraid somebody might notice her car or have been a witness to it maybe she went to the old boyfriend's house thinking maybe he could help her and he wasn't there so she just left her car and called people who could help her possibly i don't know why Uh, to me i'm not sure why she left her car i don't know i got in my car and went home now when asked the police later on asked her well why didn't you report this incident 
I mean, think about it. How many times has this girl been assaulted before? Three other times, right? And nothing happened. And nothing happened. So she stated that the police hadn't done anything the first time, the first few times she was assaulted. So why bother calling them for this one? This one never actually went through. Plus, I'm sure she was on meth. And also, she slashed the guy's uh, dick, okay? So I, I imagine that she just didn't want to get involved with the police. Yeah, I mean, I I can totally see that, and I get it. Yeah. Now, remember I told you, like, I think she was shocked for a few weeks after because mm-hmm. she told everybody, she, she told everybody, you know, well, this happened to me, and this is what I did. She told her friends and family the story never varied. It was always the same story. Uh, in the weeks that followed her attack, she would bring it up a lot. She would talk about it a lot. In Vegas, where she continued to use meth, and then when she moved back, went back home to Panica, where she eventually returned on July 2nd. She wanted to, to get cleaned up. Okay. Um, one friend that she told on a drive to Utah, uh, she described the attack to her friend. This lady's name was Kimberly Grindstaff. She told her that she had used the knife to defend herself. She slashed the man somewhere near his groin. And the girl, Kimberly, said that she didn't even get the impression that the guy was hurt. Um, She said that I was under the impression it was just enough for her to get away. And who knows? It might have. It might have been, right? Another one of her friends, Heather McBride, heard a nearly identical story saying that Lobato had told her she used the knife to defend herself against the sexual attack and that she cut the man's abdomen. And McBride said that she asked her, well, what happened to the guy? And... Um, Blaze said, well, I didn't stick around to find out. Right. Because, I mean, if she didn't believe that maybe he was really injured mm-hmm. and just stunned and she was able to get away, she right. was hauling ass. She yeah. wasn't going to stick around. This is just enough for me to get loose and get the hell out of there, yeah. right? I'm not trying to get... Now, McBride says that they... Dis- yeah. She says that they discuss this on July 2nd or 3rd, right? Mm-hmm. She doesn't remember which, but she remembers it was more than a month after the assault. Okay. Duran Bailey's body was not discovered until until July 8th, and it was discovered eight miles away from where Blaze said her attack took place. So she said that she was attacked in the Budget Suites parking lot. Right. While Duran was found in the bank, behind the bank by the dumpster. Now... The conversation with her former teacher, Dixie, um, Miss Tinkin, told the police that she herself didn't call the police because her former student was a drama queen. She's like, you know, I don't know. Her story didn't quite seem believable. And I'm going to tell you a little bit later why she didn't think it was believable. Okay. The cops show up at her house in Panica. And she realizes that her worst fears confirmed that this guy that she slashed in the parking lot must be dead. Why else would the cops show up at her door, right? Right. I imagine that she's probably scared to death. Yes. So over the next hour or so, she answers the cops' questions, and she's sobbing. She described the attack that happened to her in May. She described the location in detail. She described the man who attacked her. She described what she did to him and then what she did afterwards. She did tell them that she cut her attacker's penis, Um, But she said that her memory wasn't that great because of the meth. She thought she was trying to cut it off. She told the cops that she was back home to clean up her act. Well, good for her. I mean, at least she's very honest with them. It sounds like she was trying to be as honest as possible. Yes. Yet they did not find her believable. Well, they, they, okay, I'm going to get to that. Okay. Because don't forget that she's a meth head. Yes. So they're discounting her story right away. Yes. Now, I have a question. Why? Of course you do. <laughs> of course I do. So why did the teacher, the teacher's friend, because the teacher's not the one who called the police, the teacher's friend is. Yes. Okay, so what prompted her to call the police and ask if you're missing a penis? This, this is the big question of the whole case. And we're going to get to what, you know, because it's hearsay. It's a rumor, and we're going to talk about that when we get into the trial. But for the police to discount Diane Parker and her rape and then go with some lady from Panica, 
who is a juvenile probation officer. So I guess, I mean, is that considered kind of law enforcement? I don't know. Yes. So oh, maybe they're taking her word. Oh, and then they're like, well, holy shit, we got somebody. This is too close. We're going. But Lauren Johnson had never spoken to Blaze Lobato herself. She just, she had a conversation with this teacher and then she took that information and called the police. Now, if I called the police, not as a probation officer, not as anyone, and said, well, my friend Mercedes has this friend who said that they cut someone's penis off. They would say, I'm sorry, ma'am. We can't. That's not valid information. That's hearsay. Yes. We don't care. And here it is. It's it's information dropped in their lap. And they don't really have to do any work for the, you know, for this investigation. They just need to close the case. Exactly. Now, these are things. I remember I told you that I read that article by Miss um, Johnson from The Intercept magazine. She's pointing out all the flaws of this investigation. She said that the cops failed to ask some very important questions. She put their asses on blast. Yes, she did. And this was published, I believe, in 2015. She said that the police never asked Blaze where she was the weekend of Bailey's murder. All right. So this article was published after the trial, after all of that. Okay. Yes. She also said that... When Blaze described the attack against her, including a detailed description of the budget suites, like what happened, which happened to be located across town from where Bailey was found eight miles away, that the officers failed to ask any questions that would confirm where she where she had actually been or if she'd ever been to the original crime scene where Bailey was. Now, the investigator, the detective Thosin, he would later say that he didn't want to put any ideas into her head. So he never asked her questions about the original crime scene. When Lobato described the man to the cops, the man who attacked her, they did nothing to elicit details that might confirm that she was actually talking about Bailey and not a different black man. When Thosin showed her Bailey's mugshot, Lobato said she did not recognize him. However, Thosin later said that he didn't believe her, that her demeanor showed that she really did recognize him. And then finally, when Lobato mentioned that her attack had occurred over a month ago, not within the last couple of weeks, they failed to show up at all. Instead, they turned off their tape recorder, ending the interview. They, that's shitty. Yeah, that's when they arrested like her. These two. No, they arrested her and drove back to Las Vegas. On what evidence were they arresting her? Just that she admitted she cut someone? I'm so glad you brought up evidence because that's going to come up. All right. Prosecutors and police repeatedly suggested that her recorded statement to police on July 20th was a confession. No. She was explaining what happened and they're saying, oh, this is her confession that she murdered Duran Bailey. Now, at her trial, one of the prosecuting attorneys, by the way, who was a judge in Nevada was publicly chastised by the Nevada Supreme Court for being, uh, for dubious behavior. So he had done things that were questionable, like, um, you know, swaying the jury illegally. And I read all this, but he did some things that were quite questionable a number of times, not just once. Right. Okay. So he showed a pattern. Of- he, showed a, he showed a pattern. And how the hell did this man become a judge? Sometimes I question how people become judges because. Well, well they're voted in. And we're not talking politics in this podcast. Nope. Okay. Love you. <laughs> All right. Anyway, um, they he told jurors that Blaze confessed to murdering Duran Bailey and that when she was confronted by the police during the initial interview, the first thing that she did was drop her head and start crying and saying, I didn't think anyone would miss him. Wait, what? Yes. She said that? She, uh, that's what he's saying to the jurors. Okay. Well, yeah, she's an 18-year-old girl. The police are showing up. She knows that she almost was raped. She had been raped three times, then was almost raped for a fourth time. Then she cut a guy. Yeah, she's probably like, holy shit, I can't take this anymore. And she bowed her head and started crying because she's a fucking 18-year-old well, and girl. and she was sobbing during the initial interview when the police showed up. Her, her, well, I would be too. Right? But they're, twist, they're twisting that story and saying that she had confessed to murdering mm-hmm. Duran Bailey. I really don't like you. If you're listening, I don't like you. All right. No one ever seriously considered that she might have been referring to a totally separate incident. 
Well, that's not how it was presented to the jury. Now, that's complete bullshit. Yes. So even though there was absolutely no evidence that she killed Bailey, she was still tried for first degree murder and mutilation. How was it first degree murder if she was attempted rape? Wouldn't that be self-defense at the least manslaughter? Well, she was charged with first degree murder. All right. Did they prove that she knew him? Okay, let me tell that story. All right. So she was tried in 2002 and convicted. No evidence. Complete bullshit. Now, the the verdict was overturned because the judge improperly barred the defense from presenting evidence that changed the credibility of a jailhouse snitch. So she was granted a retrial in 2006. The same judge presided over her second trial. Who snitched on her? That, I don't know. I couldn't get any information on that at all. And I looked at a bunch of different sources. Okay, so, so improperly barred the defense from presenting evidence that challenged the credibility. Okay, yes. so. So there was a jailhouse snitch in the first trial, and the judge did not allow the defense to question that snitch. Now, how? This is all corrupt, how right? Illegal. Let's just bury an 18-year-old girl in prison, right? So and she's a white girl. Yes, she is. Okay. <laughs> I guess it wouldn't matter, but yeah, no, it I mean, she matter is. Whatsoever. But I mean, I'm just yeah, right. It happens. All right. So here's the state's theory of the crime. This is what they presented to the jury. Blaze Lobato was fiending for methamphetamine, so she drove from Panica. To Las Vegas sometime on July 6th. She drove three hours to get meth. You can get meth at the local corner. She could walk three feet and probably get it from wherever the hell she's from. Okay, so anyway, while there, she scored some drugs from somewhere. Nobody really knows where. Nobody said. And she partied until the wee hours of July 8th when she ran out of drugs and went on a quest for more. She traveled west of the Strip and made her way to the Nevada State Bank behind the dumpster to find Bailey, you know, who, by the way... How does she know to look for a homeless guy behind a dumpster? I guess that could happen. But it was never made clear that he was a meth dealer. As a matter of fact, he had no... Oh, he was a meth dealer? No, he had no meth in his system at all when he after his autopsy. He did have booze. He did have cocaine. But no one ever said, no one ever testified this guy was a drug dealer. Okay. But this is the prosecution. You know, they're making up a story and the jury is believing it. We can't just make shit up. They have to have right. like some sort of evidence proof. Well, it gets better because according to the pros- prosecution, Lobato agreed to trade fellatio for drugs. Oh, fellatio. Fellatio. Oh, is that the word they use? Yeah. Do you know what that means? I do. Do you want to tell our audience? It's a blowjob. Right. So she agreed. This is, this is what... I'm sorry, it's oral sex. But on a man's penis. That's a blowjob. Okay. So he's saying that she agreed to give this guy a blowjob for the drugs, but then she changed her mind because she's been sexually abused so many times that she just decides, no, I'm not going to do it. Because I don't want to stick your diaper smelling ass Because dick in my he mouth. stinks, right? And she doesn't want to do it. But he's like not going to take no for answer. Gross. All right. This pisses him off. And then... She gets pissed off right back because this 100 pound 18 year old high on meth then somehow overpowers and beautiful beautifully <laughs> oops overpowers and brutally murders Bailey. She stabs him repeatedly. She bludgeons him with a baseball bat that she kept in her car. Now they did find a baseball bat in her car. Was there blood on it? No blood whatsoever. No they blood. A knife? Was she rape ass? Rape no down? blood or other evidence was at all found on the bat or in the car. Before slicing and stabbing, according to the prosecution, um, before slicing and stabbing his rectum and amputating his penis, um, she beat him with a bat. But that's what they're telling the jury. If he was all jacked up on cocaine, he wasn't probably going to get the best. No. It's their story. They can tell it how they want, right? Right? I guess so. All right. So uh, they're saying that after she killed him, she covered his body with trash, jumped in her car, jetted back to Panica, three hours through desert and mountain wilderness at night on two lane roads unlit. She arrived fast enough to get cleaned up. By midday, she was hanging out with a friend, driving around a four wheeler and drinking beer. 
That's some serious hyperbole here. Yeah. Now, she got to present her alibi. She said that she arrived in Panico on July 2nd, 2001. She was sick and weak. She believed that she had been poisoned by bad drugs in Las Vegas. That's just withdrawal. Well, I don't know. I don't know. This is what she said on the stand. Can you get poisoned by drugs? Bad I mean, drugs? I imagine that, that, isn't that poison? you can put whatever the hell you want in that okay, shit. First of all, meth is poison. It is poison. Like, I mean, that's like bleach and household cleaner. Battery acid and all kinds of... Golly. All right. Who thinks this is a good idea? Well, her stepmother took her to see a doctor on July 5th. So she thinks it's a good idea. Right. The, the stepmother. The stepmother, yeah. the meth head. Uh, well, I don't know if she was a meth head at this the point or not. Meth user. Meth user when, when life is when tough. When life was tough. Right. Anyway, her stepmother took her to see a doctor on July 5th, and they were told to come back with urine samples, which they eventually did. They followed doctor's orders and continued, she, Lobato continued to stick around Panica. You come back with the urine samples? Yeah, that was odd to me also, but I think that this all established part of her alibi. Okay. Like she was here. She went to the doctor on such and such a day. So I, I'm not, I thought that was odd. You don't leave to go pee and then bring it back unless, you know, they took it, they went and peed at some other, like a quest type place. Some Ponoc. Yeah, who yeah, knows? Go yeah. So she had to come back. Yeah, who knows? But, um, well, there's she, anybody's pee. Right. She was also spotted by several people in the meantime, including by a neighbor's grandson. Um, it, she said that before long, she did decide to go back to Las Vegas after all, but she did not leave until the morning of July 9th. That was the day after Bailey was found. On July 8th, Lobato said she was hanging out with a friend, drinking beer, riding around on a four-wheeler. A neighbor confirmed this. She said that she saw Lobato as she was doing dishes. She looked out her window and saw Lobato on the vehicle turning donuts in the street. That's something I would remember. I'd be going, those kids better get off my lawn. Right. Why are you in the middle of the street on a freaking four-wheeler? Doing donuts, right? Now, back in Vegas, Bailey's body would be discovered late that night. So late that early, that midday, she had been spotted doing donuts, drinking beer with a friend. Okay. And then later at 10 o'clock that night, Bailey's body was discovered. But they couldn't determine a time of death, so they don't know how long he had been laying there in that dumpster. Okay. So prosecute, prosecutors did a, a few things. First, they wanted to kill the credibility of any witnesses that were testifying on her behalf. They questioned another neighbor whose grandpa, who's gr- the one that whose grandson said he was hanging out with Lobato. Right. And they got the grandmother to say that her grandson was brain dead and the kid just doesn't do the things he's supposed to do. And so he was not a reliable witness. Uh, now, <laughs> I know, right? That's not what brain dead means. Right. Um, prosecutors also implied that Becky, the stepmother, coerced the young man to testify and lie about seeing Lobato and Panica that weekend. Um, and she, she seriously, she says, I would never do that. She denies it. And is there any reason to believe that she would be lying? I mean, any no. reason to believe that no. she's a liar? Nope. Nope. Okay. Now, it sounds like people are just a bunch of fucking assholes. Laura Johnson, remember her, the juvenile parole officer who called the police with a tip? Yeah. She took the stand. And Rosie her, Rosie. Right. Her testimony was hearsay, but yeah. the judge allowed it. That's bullshit. The judge allowed it. What, but she's a juvenile probation officer? Because they never lie or get in trouble or any of that stuff. So the court allowed her to repeat the third-hand account of Lobato's attack, describing what she said Dixie had told her. She said that Lobato had told a high school teacher and confidant that she had severed an old man's smelly penis Gross. during an attempted sexual assault. And then the teacher contacted the probation officer. Key parts of Johnson's account contradicted um, the teacher's own testimony at trial. Now, when the teacher was... What do you call that when questioned? When she's questioned at trial by the prosecuting attorney. He tried to... she testifies. Yeah. Well, thank you. When she testified about her conversation with Lobato, the prosecutor tried to undermine her. However, um, they, he tries to say that her testimony clashes with what she told the detectives. 
Now, for example, she told the police that after Lobato had told her about being attacked, because remember I said that she's a drama queen. The teacher said she's right. a drama queen. She, you know, I don't believe what she said, that she and Lobato actually searched for news accounts. They tried to find evidence of a man who might have suffered a penis injury. And well, Lobato did this together. Her, the teacher got on the internet with Lobato and they research, they, they did a Google. I don't even know if Google was around in two thir- two, 2001, but yes, they were researched. They were trying to look for newspaper accounts of this incident and could not find anything. So the teacher did not believe oh, her. Oh, okay. Because surely something like this would have been reported. It would have made the news somehow, right? Right. Okay. So on the stand, she said that they looked online for sources that dated back to June 1st. So they looked from June and July and even parts of May. Because obviously this girl might have been worried that she injured somebody yes. she's going to get in trouble. Right. Or whatever. And so the teacher was trying to help her. Right. And they were they Probably were researching. The, they said, look, yeah. there's not anything there. Right. It's okay. They actually researched this before they were doing the research before Bailey's body had ever been discovered before before July eighth. She she uh, told a the police internet search would um, like history. Well, I don't know if they did that. That you know, like I said, the whole investigation was shoddy. They did not have any evidence whatsoever, but the defense did not provide evidence either of the the internet search. But this what is I very dis- disconcerting because this is not some podoc little itty bitty town with the police force who never investigates murder. This is freaking Las Vegas. Yeah, they but, investigate bullshit like this all the time. But you have a meth head and a homeless guy, so who really gives a shit? Well, I couldn't right? fucking figure out who killed Tupac either. So. Okay, so anyway, prosecutors suggested that uh, the prosecutor suggested that she was lying to cover up for you're lying about this search. What well, get somebody in trouble? No. Yeah. The judge, this is another thing. The judge allowed Johnson, the the lady who reported this, they allowed her hearsay, but they would not allow the um, the defense to present any of Lobato's friends who heard about her attack from what Lobato told them. So That's, that is bullshit. Yes, right? So the state convinced Judge Vega to bar Heather McBride. And remember, I told you earlier that um, Lobato had told Heather the story about the assault yes and the judge was the judge did not allow any of her testimony in addition um mcbride was interviewed later she said that experience was extremely frustrating that judge vegas sustained all the state's objectives objections and anything that would that would be said would be called hearsay or the prosecutor would say something to cut off her testimony when she, I mean, she was not ever allowed to tell the whole story. It was only what the state wanted her to say. Wow. Uh, but the defense was hardly blame, blameless. They didn't object to hardly um, much. In addition, they didn't call some of the key witnesses, like Kimberly Grindstaff, the one that she had told earlier. Um, she also was told, Kimberly Grindstaff was told that she would not be needed for either trial. So I'm not sure if it is because she was not seen as maybe a valid witness. Maybe she was too easy to to put down. I don't know. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. The most influential witness of the trial was Detective Thosen. Now, he is described as a, bl- a buff, blonde-headed veteran cop who's like the figure of an avid outdoorsman. He is considered quite hot by many. He was seen as friendly on the state side, and he gave off the air of a man dedicated to the quest of justice. Yeah. Yeah, he gives off that. Yeah. He was convincing enough to enable jurors to look past the state's lack of evidence. At her first trial, he testified that for all the details that she provided about the May attack, that it was basically all in her head. She was on meth, he said. And he told the jurors that anybody who's on meth jumbles the facts about what happened. She jumbled the facts about what happened that night. And she was trying to minimize her responsibility for the murder. And although it was not recorded in his official police report, he also testified that he had checked to see if there were any other reports of a man seeking medical attention in May, June, or July 2001. He said that there were none, but there was nothing in a police report or any of his reports. 
That showed that he even tried to do that. that. He, right. So during her second trial in 2006, he kind of changed the story a little bit. He said that his efforts to investigate her, um, the, the attack on another man, by another man, um, he, he elaborated more on it. He said, oh, I can't do it all. So he delegated the work to his secretary. But again. Wait, detectives yeah. have secretaries? Yeah, I guess like, he she's does. Not a, she's not a detective. That's not her job. Right. But he says some things have to be delegated. He to may, a police officer. So he maintained that he called some area hospitals, as did a secretary. I need to ask Loretta from Loretta's substation about this information. Okay, you do that. Now, he did not name the secretary, by the way. Of course he did, because there is none. <laughs> he, Fucking uh, detectives don't have secretaries. The sheriff's department might have a secretary. The police department might have a secretary. But he does not. That's bullshit. All right. So he also added that he had called several area urologists. You know, it's Vegas. There aren't that many there. And besides... I'm so sure. And besides, he says that a town of this size, you know, I've probably been at dinner with most of them at the same time. Uh, I don't think we hang out in the same circles. Now, despite his dismissal of her claims of a May attack, one juror at the second trial sent a note to question, a question to the judge asking if Thosin had ever gone to the budget budget suites to see if anyone might have witnessed a man assaulting Lobato. Now, Thosin replied on the stand that the motel had no information about her and no reports of incidents happened in the parking lot because there's no sense in looking for a witness to something that we know didn't happen there. No, you don't know that. You don't. She was staying with friends, so they wouldn't have had her name. And the would-be rapist probably didn't report it to the hotel. I just tried to rape somebody and she cut my dick off. No, that's not how this works. Okay, yeah. So police and prosecutors were able to ignore or explain away all the facts of the case. The fact that there's no physical evidence. Um, they had. They didn't have much pushback at all from the defense. I hope all these people get fired. Now, the Clark County Medical Examiner, Dr. Larry Sims, that we talked about him earlier. He, he cla- should be fired too. Right? He claims that um, his claim shifted slightly but significantly from the first trial in 2001 to the second one in 2006. And now, uh, did we talk about how she got the second trial? Yes, we did. We talked about how the jailhouse snitch was not allowed to be questioned by the defense. Right. But is this the Innocent Project? No, not yet. Okay. You should. Not yet. All right. So... At the hearing, he testified that he hadn't pinpointed a time of death. He was never asked to. But he estimated that that Bailey's death likely occurred within 12 hours of when his body was found around 10 p.m. So within 12 hours of 10 p.m. So if they would have checked out her alibi, she wouldn't have been able to do it because she was already home. Right. That would have made it impossible for her to have committed the the murder. So that was um, because she had been seen in Panica that morning. Now, by the time the first trial began, he had shifted the time of death to the, within 18 hours. So that allowed the prosecution, prosecution's theory some plausibility. Now, at her second trial, his testimony shifted yet again when he said that Bailey was likely killed between 12 and 18 hours before he was pronounced dead by the coroner at 3.50 a.m. on July 9th. So he's changed his opinion three times now based on one autopsy yes he is no longer a credible witness now when he was asked about this fluid time of death estimation he denied changing his testimony he claimed that his first and shortest estimation which would have excluded possible contact with mrs lobato was his best estimation and was the most probable he added that the jury accepting the different timeline that the defense uh the prosecution gave them that implicated her amazed him he's like i can't i couldn't believe it i'm still amazed um he also said that they must have used other data from other testimony to reach their conclusion so he's distancing himself from that yeah because he knows they're fucking bullshit he's like i don't want nothing to do with this now her defense never called another medical examiner to uh review sim's time of death estimation it wasn't until she appealed in 2010 that the defense offered experts to argue that the state's timeline for Bailey's death had always been completely off. They brought in two forensic entomologists, which are the bug guys, 
And they said that... That the, would be Grissom. <laughs> they said that the absence of any fly eggs on Bailey's body suggests that his time of death was far more likely to have been just before or at sunset on July 8th. Now... Yes, when, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Because remember, way back in one of our earlier episodes, I talked about the forensic anthropology class that I took. Mm-hmm. We actually talked about the body farm which is at the university of tennessee and this is exactly why they have that body right. farm. and don't forget that the body was found by a dumpster gross on a hot july day in which Ju- would accelerate in Vegas, right so those flies would have been there almost instantly and pretty much yeah. so they're there's saying there's right? only flies hanging yeah. out the dumpster they're saying that he died within two hours of his discovery now, the um, uh, the ME, the medical examiner, he emailed the Intercept magazine, which is where I got a lot of this information. And he said that he has not critically analyzed any of the entomo- entomology evidence, but he assumes it's accurate. And he would conclude that Bailey most likely died closer to 4 p.m. In broad daylight. Right. The crime scene investigation was flawed at the most basic levels. Analysts did not take inventory of any of the tr- many of the trash items found on around Bailey's body. They took some pieces that they felt were important and they threw the rest away. That's absolutely ridiculous. I, we don't have to be a forensic anthropologist or a forensic team member to understand that bit of information. Right. So those pieces of evidence that were preserved did not point to Lobato. There were 22 fingerprints collected by crime scene analysts, and none of them matched Lobato or Bailey. In testimony in 2006, a DNA DNA analyst said that cigarette butts found at the scene revealed an unknown male profile on one cigarette butt, and then a combination of Bailey's DNA and that from another unknown person on the second cigarette. Lobato was excluded as a contributor. And so this was her third trial that they were finding? This is, this is now they're coming back gathering up information for her appeal. So in 2010, right? And Well, because well, in 2001 there was DNA. Yes, but they didn't I mean, obviously there was nobody DNA, ran DNA it. Testing. Right. Yeah. They didn't run it. <sighs> the same lab that collected blood and saliva from the chewing gum recovered at the scene yes. revealed a mixture of DNA from Bailey and a third unknown person. They were uh, doing the same gun? Now, let me just say that at this point, the Innocence Project is, they're the ones who... Are just as irate as I am. Well, okay. So, Lobata, before she was arrested, had a boyfriend in Panica when she went back, who fell in love with her. And he was telling her mom, all telling his mom all about this. His mom was named Michelle Ravel, I believe. Uh-huh. And Michelle was like, you know, this just doesn't sound right. So, she befriended blaze lobato and she stood by her for 17 years 16 years wow. stood by her and it, it was her voice that got the media involved in the Someone innocence project and so like she ran this media uh blitz about give give blaze uh, test blaze's dna test the dna evidence Good so this her. isn't this is they did they also found um dna from the gun gum that revealed um a third unknown person and then a four separate whoa, DNA. Whoa, whoa. So there are three pieces of DNA. At three least. Different, three three at different least. DNA profiles in this one wad of gum. Yes. Isn't that odd? Like maybe they were kissing it. I don't know. Right. I don't know. I'm finished with this gum. Would you like it? Okay. I'll yeah. share it with you. That's gross. Right? A fourth separate DNA profile was also found on a pubic hair that was found on Bailey's body. Well, now, Jesus freaking Christ. Was it an orgy in the dumpster? All right, we're going to get there. Orgy in the dumpster. There you go. Although police never determined the size or the make of the shoes that left the bloody prints at the crime scene. Why not? Defense experts concluded that at least one set of prints was made by a Spitfire model athletic shoe found um, sold only at Walmart. And they were two and a half sizes larger than Lobato's. The tire tracks at the crime scene did not match her tires on her 1984 Pontiac Fiero. Fiero. Um, and then when the the state knew that, but at that point, they just stopped looking. They just... They should be mm-hmm. held in contempt, arrested, and charged with something. Right. For putting... I hope that she sued the freaking pants off Clark County. All right. So, even when... Even what weapon that was used to stab Bailey to cut open his carotid artery or to amputate his penis was never determined. 
But at each of her trials, prosecutors had thrown some brain decor, a random butterfly knife for demo, uh, to demonstrate. And the, def the defense attorneys, her defense attorneys never objected to that. So, you know, it wasn't even the weapon that did the, it, because Sims's report made it clear that it was a single edge blade of some sort that made the stab. Which isn't a butterfly knife. Right. A butterfly knife is like a butterfly, you know, right. like two knives that come together to create one, right? Right. Uh, I don't know. Sort of? I don't or know. No, the butterfly... I think like a little switchblade or something, maybe. Yeah, I don't like know. Yeah, separate, whatever. Okay, so that anyway, the Intercept asked retired Texas medical examiner, Dr. Lloyd White, to review the autopsy report and photos, and he said that he could only determine that a single edge blade was used to make at least one wound, but the depth of the wounds was apparently... like a steak knife. Like, that's what a single edge would be. A butterfly knife is edged on both sides. Okay. Anyway, he said that it wasn't a good autopsy report. All right. So in the end, the jurors, um, at, the, at the end of both trials, the jurors were encouraged to look past the lack of evidence and the otherwise confusing twists and turns in the case and to focus on one, one thing, the penis. The penis. Right? So Bailey was missing a penis and she admitted to cutting a penis. So the rest was just unnecessary, unimportant details. So the reason, according to the prosecutor Kephart, that you'll never forget this trial is because a man's penis was cut off. So that's what the whole trial surrounded was surrounded by. Now, in both trials, it only took a few hours of deliberation for her to be convicted by the jury. In her first trial, she was sentenced to up to 100 years on a charge of murder with use of a deadly weapon and a second charge of sexual penetration of a dead human body. And at her second trial... She was only convicted of involuntary manslaughter and one count of sexual penetration. However, she was sentenced up to 35 years in prison and <gasps> forced to, to register as a sex offender. Uh, and I did tell you about Michelle Ravel, yes, who, who um, was responsible for the Innocent Project coming in. So in October of 2017, the um, her attorneys presented the testimony of the entomologist and all of the other information and she was granted um, she was granted wrongfully conviction of murdering Duran Bailey in 2002 and she was exonerated in December 2017 and freed from prison. How long was she in jail? 16 years. Jesus Christ. Yeah, she got out when she was 32. But the question is still who killed Duran Bailey? The crime scene was gruesome. He had been beaten. His teeth were knocked out. His penis was cut off. A knife had been stuck in his rectum. Uh, many involved in the subsequent investigations believe that he was murdered by friends of Diane Parker. Remember yep. her? She's the woman who stepped forward at the crime scene asking police what happened. She's the one who reported being raped by him. Yes. She says that it said that less than a week before Duran's murder, she called Metro police and told them that Bailey had raped her. She said he was continuously breaking into her home and threatening to kill her. She also told police that her friends, who she referred to as the Mexicans, confronted Bailey about the rape. Now, Steve Moore, who's a former FBI investigator, stated that the murder of Duran Bailey was consistent with a revenge killing. It is. I mean, if you think about it, because of the whole rape, I mean, essentially he was raped with a knife. Right. Yeah. So he said yes, that. Definitely. They, they. Yeah. Yeah. He said that three Latino men stick out to me who were witnesses. He said when he tried to trace them through their social security numbers, of course, they were in invalid. Um, one of them came back for someone who was deceased. You know, uh, these were men who were not in the country legally. So no. you can't track them. He also said that Diane Parker had black eyes when she had been pounded, um, punched. She had been raped anally. And the man's. Um, so here it is. She has black eyes. Bailey has black eyes. She's raped anally. He's raped anally. So it's kind of like an eye for an eye here. Mm -hmm. um, now, she has since passed. She had passed away before the Innocent Project picked up this case. But her boyfriend at the time signed an affidavit saying that Bailey was killed by Parker's friends. <laughs> and he says the murder was revenge for Bailey raping Diane Parker. Holy shit. Yeah. A private investigator hired by the defense to look into these friends said that the Metro police handled the investigation of the murder of Bailey. And there's no evidence at all that they looked into the rape of Diane Parker. There's no evidence they ever questioned her boyfriend or any of her friends. 
It's also important to note that there was absolutely still no evidence of Lobato's found at all on the crime scene, but there was male DNA and male footprints. Shame on them. Um, that, my friends, is the real life example of it wasn't me. And yes, amen. So my advice is stay away from meth because it can lead to many different roads of ruin. It it did for Chris, uh, Blaze Lobato, but thankfully she was eventually given her freedom. So I just really hope she'll have a life filled with peace, love, and happiness. Me too. I hope that she sues the shit out of them. Well, as a matter of fact... She actually has a federal lawsuit claiming that she was framed for the murder by Las Vegas detectives Thomas Thosen and James La Rochelle. She was. Yeah, she was. And this was just, this was just, um, I just found this article on November 30th, 2019. So this is very, very That's recent. That's not even a month ago. No. And it's a huge long article about all the claims that all the counts against them and so hopefully um whether they intentionally did it like knowingly said we're gonna frame this girl or if it, they have to be held accountable for their bullshit i'm sorry that's just you know we're held accountable in our daily lives for the shit that we do they need to be too as yes well. and she also names the medical examiner in this suit so all the people that you said should be should lose their job the judge they're all in this lawsuit good good i hope that and, you know, here's the thing. I have a very good friend of mine who went, who I went to high school with, who I've known for half my life, who was a homicide detective. He, I can stand here today and say he would absolutely not do that. Well, I hope not. Because he, he get, these guys give all homicide detectives a bad, a name. bad name. Yes, exactly. Ugh. So that's it, guys. Uh, thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this week's murder. We really appreciate sharing our passion with you. And we thank you for your support. And if you'd like to support us even further, you can subscribe to our podcast and give us a five-star rating. While you're there, leave us a comment about absolutely anything. Your subscription and ratings are essential to our success and will help push us up the charts. You can do this on your favorite platform. For more information and links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com. We are so grateful to spend our time together to share our murderous stories. Thank you so much for listening to us and supporting us. We would like to thank our Patreon supporters. They are the extra. You too can become one of our beloved patrons by signing up at patreon.com forward slash it wasn't me pod. Subscribe to our podcast, leaving us a rating. And thanks guys. And remember, it it wasn't wasn't me. me.